Amen. Hey, go ahead and grab your Bible. Grab your Bible and turn to the book of Ephesians. And if you don't have a Bible, I invite you to raise your hand and allow one of my friends to bring you a Bible. It's a gift from us to you. Turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to study verses 3 through 12 together. And again, if you need a Bible, just throw your hand up. Let one of our ushers know that you would like one. If you're looking for the book of Ephesians, you can find it at the front of your Bible in the table of contents or seven-eighths of the way through your Bible You'll run into one of the Pauline epistles. We are finishing off not only the last Sunday of the year, but our final installment of our series, Party, where we have been discussing and discovering that the life of a believer is to be a celebration. It's to be a party. And we've talked about what it means to be prepared for the party, and we've talked about different aspects of a party and the life of a Christian. And today, we are going to talk about our response in a message that I've entitled, What Are You Bringing? What Are You Bringing? Oftentimes, when you're invited to a party, that's one of the questions that we ask. Maybe out of obligation or it's a strong sense of consideration. But just recently, Stacy and our family, we were invited to some friend's house, and Stacy asked, what should we bring? And they suggested that we bring dessert and the toppings. And so Stacy and I went with our kids into Walmart, and we were going down the candy aisle, and we got ice cream, and then we proceeded. It basically looked like Stacy was pushing the cart, we stuck out our hand, and just went like this with all the candy, just... Right into the basket. I went out and had dinner and the, the dessert at the end. And it was archaic. I mean, Brienne was like an anteater with the, the, the nerds that we put in there. I did not realize it. I don't think she'd ever had nerds before that. And she was like a kid on crack. She's just like, I just got to have nerds. I just need nerds. I like nerds. And she's just going through. And Stacy kept, like she, I watched, I watched this four-year-old one time. Stacy said, no more. And so she went around and acted like she was going for carrots on the party platter. And on her way through, she quickly looked over her shoulder and was like, grabbed some in her hand and ran off. I'm like, I'm going to tell on you. No, I'm not. You're so cute. We ask the question, hey, what can we bring to the party? How can we contribute to this celebration? And as a body of believers, the ecclesia, the body describes us as, the fellowship, the gathering, I think it's imperative for us to ask and to consider that very question in our own faith, in our own lives, in our own journey, and as a part of a broader body of believers. When we come together to celebrate and worship, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, God Almighty. And when we come together collectively, what if instead of asking, what are we going to get from the party, we began by asking, hey, what can we bring? What are we called to bring to the party? And that's what we're going to investigate together today. So let's begin our time in prayer and jump into worship in his text. Father, thank you for this time to celebrate. And I pray now that you would illuminate our minds, that you would captivate our hearts, that you would redeem this time and use it for our good and for your glory. God, I pray as we ask and answer the question, what what should we bring? That you'll stir up in us a strong consideration of our response to who you are in our lives 
and our responsibility to one another's in this community, to each other as a, as a body of believers. Lord, as your word goes out, meet us where we're at. Change in us who you want us to become and move us where you want us to go. Father, I pray for every church and every pastor in our community right now, for the pastors that are gonna preach a God-centered, gospel-focused message. Pour out your fresh anointing on each one of us. Use us to advance your kingdom. And I pray that you would get all the glory. I pray that I would decrease now in this moment so that you would increase. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be received by you as a holy and pleasing gift and offering. This is my plea, Jesus. Be praised in all this we pray. Amen. Amen. Ephesians, the Apostle Paul starts off all of his Pauline epistles with three different components. The first is who the author is. And he often introduces himself by his position, his title, which gives some understanding to his purpose. In the letter to the church in Ephesus, he says, Paul, the apostle of Christ Jesus. The second thing is he always introduces his audience to the church in, in Ephesus, which is a, a port city. Ephesus is a, is a major thoroughfare, north, south, east, west. It's near water, on, uh, uh, and, and, and there are people coming for commerce from every angle. It's, at this time, Ephesus is... It's got the, the greatest library that the world, the known world at this time has, has ever known. It's full of intellectuals. It's also got one of the seven wonders of the world. It's a temple dedicated to Artemis or, or the goddess Diana, who is perceived in Greek mythology as the, the daughter of Zeus, and she is the, she's the goddess of fertility. And they'll sacrifice all kinds of crazy things in the name of Diana. And so you've got this intellectual world and you've got this hyper-religious world. And in the midst of both of these things, the Apostle Paul will spend two years in Ephesus building up the church, preaching the gospel, presenting the hope of the world through Jesus Christ. And there's this movement, this catalytic movement of Christ in the context of this community. But as the church is growing up, as they're being raised up, they're also being influenced by the Gnostics, by the philosophers, by the enlightened group, and they're being influenced by the religious response to this princess of worship, Diana, this, this goddess of fertility, and it's infiltrating the church. So the Apostle Paul writes this letter that is compelling them to consider the cost and the consequences, but also the cause. Not just the cause of what's going on, but the cause of their worship. And that's what we're going to look at today is the cause of our worship. So with a little bit of that culture and context in mind, let's read Paul's first letter in what are known as the prison epistles, where he writes from prison in Rome around A.D. 60 to A.D. 62. He writes a collection of four letters to four local churches or communities, including Colossae, including Philemon. And here we're going to read from Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. The Apostle Paul is going to give appropriation. He's going to give appropriate appropriation of who these things belong to. All praise, Paul says, all praise. When you think about praise, 
You would do well to think about a celebration, applause, cheering. You think about a, a concert or you think about a football game or you think about a festivity, something that merits an emotional response that invokes celebration in you in a very outward expression. And the Apostle Paul says here, all praise to God. Now this is an appropriation. We live in a day and age that is not too dissimilar to what the Apostle Paul is wrestling with in Ephesus, where presenters of messages are doing so as paid orators. They are preaching a message that Paul describes as tickling the ears, that is influencing the culture and the community for the cause of their cost. Not the cause of Christ. Do you see that? For the cause of their cost. In other words, what it costs them financially to be there. They are gaining financially by presenting a message to the community at large that is appealing to everyone. It's a feel-good message. The Apostle Paul here is giving appropriate attribution or appropriation. Instead of saying, look, because I'm a gifted communicator, because I'm beautiful, because I'm strong, because I'm manly, because I have all of these characteristics and qualities that you would look for in 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 an excellent orator. If you know anything about the Apostle Paul, you know that the Bible describes him and history at large identifies the Apostle Paul as being a short man in stature with bow legs, a broken back, a big nose, a bald head, and just an ugly dude. Not somebody pretty to look at. You would not walk into a room... And as you're identifying the most eligible bachelor who has the most to offer, you would not look at the Apostle Paul and say, oh, he's the one. And yet he's got this tremendous platform to share about the only one. And rather than looking to get credit, he gives appropriation To the only one who deserves the credit. He said, all praise to God. Not to man, not to me, but to God. Who is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Because we are what? United with Christ. Two things I want to talk about here. Two things. One, every spiritual blessing. And two, united with Christ. Let's start with every spiritual blessing. The Apostle Paul is proclaiming in the context and community where commerce is is a way of life. It's people are, are, are known by what they have and they're coming together by what they have intellectually, what they have financially, what they have religiously. And the Apostle Paul isn't talking about any carnal blessing. He isn't talking about any one thing that we own or possess or have. But instead, he points to spiritual blessings. To all things spiritual. And when you ask this, yourself this question, where do we see the most prolific message ever given about spiritual blessings? You need not look any further than Matthew chapter 5, which is Jesus' first recorded sermon, also known as the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, I want to encourage you, hold your finger here in Ephesians, and then turn to the left in your Bible, to the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, the first book in the New Testament. And I just want to read this together, because Jesus is sitting up on side of a mountain. There are Thousands of people who have gathered from more than 10 communities, what they know as the Decapolis. 
And they've come together, haves, have-nots, young, old, men, women, Jews, Gentiles, religious elites, religious outcasts. Everyone has come from all over this context and this community to hear this message. And Jesus begins his Sermon on the Mount Not with things that we gain this side of heaven, but with spiritual blessings. He's going to flip the known world on its head by giving this message. If you want to know more about the the Sermon on the Mount, specifically these nine beatitudes or attributes of the Christian, I encourage you to go to our YouTube channel, Country Bible Church. You can go to our media page online and you can click and there's a link to all of our series. There was a series we did two years ago entitled Nine, where we looked at these nine characteristics or attributes in detail, but here I want to read for us this morning. Check this out. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 3. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. God blesses those who who, who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. Now keep in mind that when Jesus gives this Sermon on the Mount, when he gives this message, people are clamoring to Jesus and they want to know how to live their best life now. They want to know what they can get that benefits them here and now. They want to know about financial gain. They want to know about physical gain. They want to know about relational gain. They want to know about economical gain. They want to know about leadership gain. They want to know how to have their best life now. And Jesus, rather than giving them a tenfold plan that they can implement as a blueprint for how to live their best life, is going to teach them that real blessing, true blessing, complete blessing comes not this side of heaven in the carnal or in the flesh, but from a right relationship with God. That, that these blessings that we have aren't anything that we'll ever experience in fullness this side of heaven, but an eternal blessing. Now that we set the stage with understanding that true blessing, real blessing, palpable blessing is a spiritual blessing, then we come to the Apostle Paul who writes this opulent community that is thriving culturally. They are thought leaders they are, they are business leaders. They are religious leaders. And he is going to write on the basis of blessings, not based on what they have accomplished or have to gain this side of heaven. The apostle Paul gives attribution to God. And then he says, these things from our father, our Lord Jesus Christ, verse three, the second part, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Friends, that word has blessed in the original language, in the original Greek language, It literally is what we know as a present active. And it describes for us 
something that has taken place and that is taking place. He's letting his hearers know that God has blessed you and he continues to bless you. This work has been done and it continues to be done at work in you and through you and by you. This work isn't something that took place as a one and done. This is something that that we continue to experience, that we continue to work out, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Why? Why? I would encourage you to underline this. Because. Because we are united with Christ. These blessings that we receive, these eternal blessings, these glorious blessings, both here on earth and in heaven, are not because you have done anything to merit these blessings or deserve these blessings or because you're smart enough. Remember Paul's audience, thought leaders, business leaders, finance leaders, religious leaders. That's who Paul is addressing in Ephesus. They find their value as individuals and value in life by gathering together at the library to exchange philosophies and ideas, by gathering in the temple of Artemis to exchange religious responsibilities, by gathering throughout the community in this port city to exchange commerce. They find their value and, 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 and their identity by what they've done. And here the apostle Paul says, these blessings, these blessings that are out of this world, these blessings that are unlike anything that you could ever hope for or imagine or think up, these blessings are all because of the cause of Christ. They're not because of anything you've done, but because you are united with Christ. That is our hope. That is our promise. That is the guarantee that these blessings that you and I will experience aren't because we are good enough, but because God is enough. If you hear nothing else that I say this morning, I pray that that permeates in your head and your heart. These blessings that we receive are not because we are worthy of them. It is because we are united with Christ. Christmas morning, when we sat around our tree and we talked about what we were thankful for and grateful for and we read the Christmas story, I didn't go to my kids and say, all right, go get your presents. And as they opened each present, I asked them this question. Now, why do you think you got that? Caden, why do you think you got that new sweatshirt? Well, it's because I did a lot of dishes and I was mostly nice to my sisters half the year. (laughs) You're right, buddy. That's why we got you that sweatshirt. Next year, if you're especially nice to your sisters, you might even get two sweatshirts. We didn't go to Ryan who got this unbelievable laser tag set. I, I, I burnt more calories on Christmas morning by playing laser tag inside and outside and I almost ended up in the hospital because of this stupid game. We didn't go to Ryan and say, honey, you got laser tag because how hard you worked in school all year. I mean, you're an exceptional student, and because you worked so hard, you get the laser tag. No, no, no. We gave them the gifts and said, guys, we love you, and we want to celebrate the goodness of God together, and that's it. That's why we do this. As we come together collectively as a body of believers, 
We should take joy in knowing that the reason that we're able to be here and celebrate isn't because of anything that you brought with you, but because you're united with Christ. If we were a Pentecostal church, that'd be a big amen right there. (laughs) These blessings come because we are united with Christ. Nothing you have to do, but you're aligned with Christ and they are yours. Verse four, the apostle Paul says, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy, which means set apart and without fault in his eyes. Guys, without being a Christmas passage, this is about as close to a Christmas passage as anyone could read. The purpose of Jesus, the purpose of God's one and only son, the purpose of him entering earth from the heavenly realms. Verse five, Paul says, God decided in advance to adopt us. If you read in James and in 1 John in particular, we learn even more about this adoption that we become heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ and what this adoption looks like. It's a beautiful word picture. Whenever we read adoption, friends, let me explain to you. Now, if you know someone who's adopted or maybe you've adopted someone, you get, if you've ever been adopted, it takes on a whole new meaning. I was adopted in 1994 at 16 years old. And when I was adopted, I not only took on my family's last name, but I I came into an inheritance that I don't deserve. Not even by blood. I've done nothing to be worthy of the inheritance. I will inherit every roll of undeveloped film my mom has. I will inherit every bill that they haven't paid off. There's an inheritance that comes by being a part of their family, by being a part of the Anderson family. Friends, there is an inheritance that comes by being a part of the family of God. And take, take, take joy in this, that we are co-heirs with Christ. It's a part of being the family. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself, incarnate through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do. Not he had to do, he wanted to do. And it gave him great pleasure. He's talking to this community that is all about religious rights and responsibilities. And here the Apostle Paul says it is all about a right relationship. It is all about a right relationship. Church, this might be an appropriate time for you to cover your young one's ear. But I want to give you just a little bit more context. To the princess Diana or Artemis, this goddess of fertility, there were families that would literally dedicate their girl's virginity on the altar. In the name of this little G God, this little deity, they would sacrifice their purity. They would sacrifice their virginity because they wanted something. They wanted a blessing. And there were these rules and regulations that followed this religion that drove their relationships. And what Paul tells this group of individuals that's hearing this letter is that it's not about any of your religious rhetoric. That it is about a right relationship with Jesus that changes everything. And that happens not because you did anything, but because it pleased God. That he wants to have this relationship with you so much that it pleases him to step into the world and intercede on your behalf. Imagine hearing this. Imagine how much you've given away of yourself and how much you've sacrificed to a false God only to hear that the God of the universe loves you so much that he wants to set you apart as holy and pleasing unto himself and not because we deserve it, but because he wants to. Just wants to. That's the kind of radical God we serve. 
the kind of generous God we serve. Why? Because he wants to, because he loves you. Take my girls with me as often as I can, or my son with me whenever I leave the house. Most of the time, Stacy isn't aware of it, but I'll take him to family fair, Jim and Connie's, and I get him donuts. Why? Because I want to. I can't eat them, so somebody should be able to. I just want to smell it. Old-fashioned donuts in particular. Oh, amen is right. See? Pentecostal church. God did this because he wanted to. So what do we do? What do we do? What is our... What is our only response? What is our natural byproduct of understanding that we get these blessings because we are united with Christ and that we get to experience the fullness of God's salvation because it pleases him? What should our response be? So glad you asked. It's a great question. Look at verse 6. Paul says in light of these things, verses 3, 4, and 5 build up to this point. Because of what God has done through Jesus Christ, he says in verse 6, So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear children. We praise God because of the glorious riches and love, the abundance that he has poured out on us. The Apostle Paul is a brilliant orator and he uses elaborate word pictures throughout his epistles to help us understand contextually what's going on. And Paul here chooses to use a flood, a rain that pours out of the skies, that comes down on us, that affects everything around us. We know based on the flood warnings that we received even in the last 48 hours that when you have waters rising and you have water pouring down from the skies, that the water rises and it will break or it will breach the walls and it will pour out onto other things around them. In the Christian life, we allow God to pour out on us. We receive it and it wells up within us so deep and so overwhelming that it should pour out of our lives and affect others around our lives. That is the byproduct. That is the natural byproduct of a relationship with Jesus. What does Paul say we do? In verse 6, he says, when you understand that you have all of these blessings for no other reason that you unite yourself with Christ and because God loves you, the only thing that we can do is praise God. Verse 6, so we praise God. Church, I cannot think of any other reason in this moment right now than to just stop and to applaud God and praise him. Thank you, God. Thank you, Father. We praise you. How often do we do that? How often do we stop in awe on the majesty of God who has created us just to praise him, to say, thank you, God. Thank you for loving me and for choosing me. I praise you. I worship you. I adore you. You alone are worthy, God. You are worthy of my praise. All glory, all honor, and all praise. I give it to you. I give it to you. We do this at award ceremonies, don't we? When kids get an award for the most improved player or the most valuable player or when they've won a game, we'll applaud their efforts. We'll applaud their, their work. We do this at our work parties. When, when they get up at the end of the year and they talk about how the company has grown this year and, and they thank you for your contributions and, and they might even recognize somebody's unique contributions and we'll applaud their work and we'll applaud their efforts. And we do this at school performances and programs when a kid has a solo or, or a 
part in the play or, or something specific that is unique and stands out, we'll applaud their efforts and we'll tell them, great job, wonderful job. I'm so proud of you. As a dad, not as a pastor alone, but as a dad, I'm going to take just a minute to tell you how, how much joy it brings my heart that when I come into worship, I see my son, 16 years old, using this gift that God has given him to help lead worship through the drums, and my little baby girl, 13 years old, using this unique voice that God has given her to sing to help usher others into a place of reflection and worship, and I, and I applaud my kids. I applaud their efforts. I applaud Brian, and I applaud Austin, and Sue, and, 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 and others who are a part of this amazing worship, Ron, and others, but guys, how much more should we stop and pause and praise the one who sustains our life by giving us the very breath in our lungs? Amen. God, you are so worthy of our praise. When we understand, when we discover what God has done for us, Paul literally says, that our natural response is praise. Do you know far too many people in the church today, rather than praising God, they want to try to intellectually identify with why it's happened. And they develop whole theologies around it. And they want to argue and debate. I mean, shut up. God did what you can't do so that you could experience what you could never experience without him. That's worthy of his praise. And his praise alone. And I, I meant be quiet. I'm sorry. It's the last sermon of the year. I get a little worked up. In verse 7, Paul says, He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. Church, keep in mind again, you have to understand culture and context. Paul is doing a masterful job of appealing to his entire audience. First, he appeals to the intellectuals. The largest and, 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 and the greatest library in the known world at, at that time. And then he appeals to the religious. And now... He's appealing to the financial leaders, to the business leaders. In a few short sentences, the Apostle Paul gives a message that is for all, and he addresses each and every one of them. In other words, when we read this, when we hear this, we should understand that this message is relevant for us today. We may not have been a part of the original audience that Paul intended it for, but because the, the word of God is active and alive, it's still being written on our hearts today. And so there's something for everyone. And here, those who come in with thick, big, deep pockets that think they drive the commerce, he says in verse 7, you think you're rich? You think you've done something spectacular with your finances? You think you've given a lot? Check this out. Verse 7, he is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom. You don't have enough money to do what God has done. And he did it because he's so rich and he's so kind that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. Vicarious atonement, doing for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Verse 8, he has showered us. There it is again. Unbelievable word picture. He has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. Now he goes full circle back to the intellectuals. And this is parallel to James chapter 1, verse 3, 4, and 5, when he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously 
out of abundance. Radically, this unbelievable, unmatched wisdom. We should give praise to God because he's showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. Now the Apostle Paul is going to do something really unique here. He is going to take this opportunity to teach some doctrine. To give some fundamentals of our faith. In verse 9, God has now revealed to us his mysterious plan regarding Christ. Paul talks about this mystery a lot. You can find it in Colossians. You can find it, in fact, you can find it in most of his epistles. But in Colossians, he actually talks about our mandate. He says that we are responsible to present the word of God as a servant of the Lord, that which has been kept hidden, but is now revealed in Christ Jesus. Here he says, God has revealed to us his mysterious plan regarding Christ. For 400 years, God's voice had been silent and people were just wandering and waiting, wondering what was going to happen? And now it's been, there's a revelation through Christ, a plan to fulfill his own good pleasure. Verse 10. And this is the plan. Now here's, the, here's what we call the doctrine of reconciliation. If you're interested in writing that down and studying that sometime, this is a, a primary or a basis for what we know as the doctrine of reconciliation. In other words, a teaching on how and why we are reconciled to God. Here in verse 10. The doctrine of reconciliation, and this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ. Guys, we live in a, in a community that is subdivided based on economics. Growing up where I grew up in North Portland, near the University of Portland, the pilots... There is literally a street that separates the haves and the have-nots. On one side of the street, to the south, you have multiple million-dollar homes that are ornate, beautiful stonework and brickwork that are a part of the historical registry in the state of Oregon that have ivy growing up the side of these walls and these beautiful gardens with these with these ornate gates that keep everything in. And to the north of the very same street that divides, you have Rosa Parks Elementary School, which houses a community around it that has the most notorious gang in the state of Oregon that has been featured on gang wars and gangland on, on, on the Discovery Channel. You can go and research them. There's this unbelievable darkness and oppression from what is known as the Hoover criminals. And this Crip gang that wears Houston Astros gear with the H and, and their gang signs that they literally have to police it. They have a curfew of 10 o'clock at night because of all the, the homicides, the shootings, the drive-by shootings that take place. The depravity. I have a friend who pastored a church on the corner of this division that walked outside and saw people shooting up in the, in the back stairwell of the church. That saw people defecating and doing the most unthinkable things that you could ever drum up in your mind. Right there, there's this division. We live in a country and a culture where we may not see it here in Nebraska, but in North Carolina, they call them historical markers. I lived there for almost three years. 
It was nothing to drive to a plantation where there was a marker or to go to an old rest stop where they left these signs that said black only, white only, water fountains. Black only, white only, restrooms. Now you didn't have to observe those, but they kept those up there as historical markers or landmarks or reminders of where we've come from. Friends, we still have divides in our country today. We have political divides, Democrats, Republicans, and any other flavor in between. We've got relational divides. We've got financial divides. We have got these unbelievable, unprecedented divides that separate us. And the Apostle Paul, in the midst of his letter, in the community where they are hyper, hyper focused on what divided them financially, what divided them religiously, what divided them intellectually. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes about the doctrine of reconciliation. In verse 10, and this is God's plan, that at the right time, he will bring everything together, Jew and Gentile, male and female, haves and have-nots, that he will bring them all together under the authority of Christ and everything in heaven and on earth. Furthermore, in other words, I'm not done. I'm just getting started. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God for he chose in advance and he makes everything work out according to his plan. He makes everything work out according to his plan. Now listen, this isn't going to come up on the screen because I just thought about this. But if you want to check this out, this doctrine of reconciliation, even a little bit more, go to your Bible or make a note to yourself to go back and read Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read Romans 8, 28 through 30, just so you can understand a little bit more of what Paul's talking about here. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. For God knew his people in advance and he chose them to become like his son so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, he called them to come to him. And having called them, he gave them right standing with himself. And having given them right standing, he gave them his glory. God works all things together for the good of those who believe, who've been called according to his good pleasing and perfect will. This is the doctrine of reconciliation. That God will do the undoable. This side of heaven, he'll do it for all eternity. Where every one of us who call on the name of Jesus will be reconciled unto him. Why? Because it pleases him. Why? Because he loves us. Why? Because he chooses this for us. He chose this before the beginning of the world. God wants to reconcile each and every one of us. If this is the very heart of God, if this is the meta-narrative from Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created in the heavens and the earth, all the way to the very end of Revelation, where he talks about this, this, John records this mysterious dream, how these wars will come during the end times and the seven churches that he addresses these letters to, and all that takes place in this, and the collective common for all of it is God's reconciliation for all people of all time. Shouldn't we care an awful lot about reconciliation this side of heaven? Isn't it a good warm-up for what we'll experience in heaven for all eternity? For anybody who calls on the name of Jesus, including the people that you just don't like this side of heaven, you had better get used to them because you're going to spend eternity with them. God's plan and purpose is reconciliation. So what do we do, church? What do we do when we understand this reconciliation, this doctrine of reconciliation? Let me tell you, let me teach you, let me share with you what we are called to do. In verse 12, and this is where we're going to leave off today. 
In verse 12, it says, God's purpose was that we Jews, now he's talking about the, the elected ones, the ones who felt like they were better than everybody else, that we Jews who were the first to trust in Christ would do what? Would bring praise and glory to God. I want you to do this with me. We're going to leave that up there just for a second. Lindsay, leave that up there, please. And let's just look at this together. What is God's purpose for our life? Would you read this with me out loud, please? God's purpose was that we Jews who were the first to trust in Christ would bring praise and glory to God. When the Apostle Paul is referring here to we Jews, he's talking about those who have been called. But he just explained the doctrine of reconciliation, which addresses the issue of who's been called. Who's been called? Everyone. And for those of us that are called to trust in Christ, what do we bring to the party? What does it say? What do we bring? Praise and glory. When we come to the party that is the presence of God, we bring with us praise and glory. We bring with us celebration. We bring with us to the party this attitude and the attribute of praise and glory. That's what we bring. When Stacy and I go somewhere for dinner or for a party, we always ask, hey, can we bring anything? What can we bring? What can we contribute? And the inviter will often consider and say, don't worry about bringing anything. Or hey, since your husband is lactose intolerant and he's gluten intolerant and he can't basically just bring Andrew's meal and then you just come. <laughs> or they'll say, hey, can you bring dessert? Or would you bring the salad? How about you bring the bread? You bring the game. You bring the kids or, or don't. But when we ask the question, what do we bring? We're often given instructions. And because we want to honor the inviter, we bring it. God is the inviter. You and I are the invitees. And he invites us to experience glories beyond imagination simply by uniting ourselves with Christ. And far too often at churches all across America, when people are considering about what church they're going to go to, they're asking the wrong question. They're asking, what are they going to bring to me? What kind of music are they going to bring? What kind of message is the pastor going to bring? What kind of programs is the church going to bring? What kind of building are they going to have? What kind of people are going to be there? What are they going to look like? What are they going to sound like? And we go into the party with our own expectations of what we're going to get out of it. And when we come to the party and our expectations aren't met, we often leave disappointed and talk about how that was the worst party ever. But what would happen if instead of asking what we can get out of it, we looked and considered what we can bring to the party and we came prepared to bring God our praise and our offering. Church, 
one of the greatest gifts that I can give you as your pastor at the very end of 2019 is the moment to meditate. The moment to meditate, to literally give consideration and intentional thought to God's good and perfect and pleasing will for your life and the blessings that he has given you, that he pours out his blessing upon blessing upon blessing in your life. And all we're called to bring to the party is praise and thanksgiving to tell God, thank you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you that you are faithful. From generation to generation, you declare that the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, you are still that God today. And the way you delivered then, you will deliver now. In February of 2020, we're doing a series entitled Keep Going. Keep going. And we are going to look at how the God of Abraham and Isaac and Aiden and Jacob worked in their lives and how he works in our lives today. Man, I am, I am so excited for 2020. Be here next week as we look about, uh, talk about reaching further and farther as a church and as we study what that's going to look like. But here in this moment, I want to give you a platform. I want to give you an uninterrupted opportunity to bring the only thing that you and I are required to bring. David says, God, what can I give you? Gold and silver, you don't want any of it because I've got so much of that I could give it to you. What you want is a broken spirit and a contrite heart. You want me to, to come before you intentionally and affectionately with the innermost part of me. That's an act and aspect of worship. So I want to give us a minute. For, the, you, for those of you who are introverted, you're welcome. For you extroverted, fo extroverted folks, hold on, it's only 60 seconds. But what I've asked the worship team to do is I've asked them just to let the music play. And I want you to take about a minute right now and collect your thoughts and allow yourself to feel. Allow the Holy Spirit to work in you. You say, what, what can we bring to the party? We are called to bring our praise and our adoration, our celebration. And I can think of no better way than to give you and to give me this moment where we can simply res respond internally and in a moment externally. Just think about and praise God for his love in your life. And that all, you, all, you've, all you've got to do is unite yourself with Christ. That's it. Financially, he's blessed you. Physically, he's blessed you. Relationally, he's blessed you. Spiritually, he's blessed you. Emotionally, he's blessed you. And take this opportunity just to give God praise.